Thank you, God. Thank you that we have that promise from you, Lord, that you are preparing a place for us, Jesus, and we have a place in heaven, and God, you say we are a child of God, and so we are, Lord, and we thank you, Jesus, for your blood. We thank you, God, that you cleanse us and make us right with you, and God, you you are here, and you are our Father, Father God, and we'll always be your child now. And so, Lord, as we continue to seek you tonight, God, I pray that you bless your word. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us and continue to minister to our hearts through your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you can um, grab your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to hold the mic. (laughs) Do you need a Bible? You sure? Okay. Luke chapter 19. Um, The title of our study tonight is The Official Entrance of the Messiah. And we're going to be studying uh, Luke chapter 19 from verse 28 through 40. We're going to pick it up where we last left. Uh, We ended at verse 27, and as we're going through this gospel, it's amazing to me we have reached uh, chapter 19, and, um, you know, we're getting here, we're in the end of this book, and we're getting to the place of um, Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection and all. But tonight, we're going to be looking at the official entrance of the Messiah. And again, Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. You know, several years ago, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia made this super grand entrance into Indonesia. He was going on this nine-day tour of what is, I guess I didn't know this, the world's largest Muslim nation. And according to media reports, when he came, he did not travel light. And that is his quote-unquote luggage weighed in at 505 tons. And that's equal to, like I was thinking about this, about uh, 11 elephants, you can say. And the reason is that his luggage included two Mercedes-Benz S600 limousines. He had two of them that he traveled with. Crazy, huh? And also, he brought two freestanding elevators. I guess in this article they had a picture, I guess uh, a previous trip to France, he brought his own elevator so he didn't have to walk down the stairs to this beach over there. So I I guess crazy, but he brings his own kind of elevator. So that really added to the weight. But it was also because he came with an entourage of 1,500 people. Uh, Ten were his ministers, 800 delegates, and 25 princes and 576 staff came along. So this is his whole entourage. And so he arrived here in Indonesia. He made this sort of grand entrance with everyone there. Now, I was thinking about um, the disrupt, disruption he made. He went, to the, he went to Bali, basically, and you think about all the people. That's crazy. Well, tonight, as we return to our study here in the book of Luke, a king arrives to Jerusalem. But it's not as grand as this Saudi king for king, for he actually only had his disciples and he came riding on a donkey. Here tonight what we're going to see is Jesus officially arrives and enters Jerusalem in official capacity uh, as the Messiah, as the nation's Messiah. Tonight we're going to study the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which is why I titled the message, The Official Entrance of the Messiah. Once again, we're going to be studying verses 28 through 40 tonight, and I've broken up our section into three parts, and uh, as usual, this is our outline I have, three three headings. Uh, Number one is Jesus arranges his ride. Number two, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And number three, Jesus arouses the Pharisees or angers the Pharisees. So that's what we're going to be seeing. Really, that's going to wrap into our points, too, for tonight. So let's begin here 
with number one in our outline, Jesus arranges his ride. Jesus arranges his ride. Now, if you're taking notes or if you're online taking notes, we're going to be covering verses 28 through 34 in this section. So that's our first section. But first of all, let's take a look at the first uh, four verses here, 28 through 31. Now, Luke here, chapter 19, verse 28, it begins with, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany on the mount that is called Olivet, he sent to his, his, of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat uh, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So we'll stop right there and pause. Now we begin here with Luke the writer going on here, saying in verse 28, and when he had said these things, like after he said these things, what things? What's the things that we just studied last week, the parable of the ten minas? Remember I titled that message, making the most of what you have. In other words, keep furthering the kingdom of God with, with the talents, the money, with opportunities that God has given you. If you missed that, you can catch our podcast or watch, our, uh, watch it online on YouTube or Facebook. But um, So after he gives this parable now, after these things, Jesus, it says in verse 28, went on ahead. In other words, he, he pressed on with his mission. He went on ahead to, verse 28 says, going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, remember, he's on his last trip to Jerusalem. We're, we're coming into it right now. We're coming into Passion Week. We're coming into the last week of his life. And so he's moving on ahead now from Jericho, which was a setting in the beginning of this chapter. And now he's pressing on in his mission to go to Jerusalem for the last time. So as he's going on now in verse 29, it says he drew near Beth. Uh, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, so he goes from Jericho now and he reaches now the Mount of Olives, and that's east of Jerusalem. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives, say the, the east side, there's two towns, and, and the two towns is listed here Bethphage and Bethany. So Jesus comes heading toward Jerusalem, to this area east of Jerusalem. Now, if you picture a map, so he traveled from Jericho, say over here, and he's, he's going heading toward the Mount of Olives, which is really like a big hill. But, uh, but first he hits on this side of the hill, Bethphage, and then he goes to Bethany, and then he goes over the peak, and he hits really the Mount of Olives where the whole olive grove is there. And then there's the Kidron Valley, and then there's Jerusalem right there, the Mount of Jerusalem, and the temple sits there. So the temple is here, the Mount of Olives, and Jericho is here. So he's traveling now, and he's going, heading toward, and he hits uh, this uh, area, Bethphage and Bethany. And you guys might remember Bethany. Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And not too uh, long before this, uh, Jesus was there in uh, Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. So there is friends. He spends time there. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll probably see during uh, his last week when he ends up in Jerusalem, he's going to be going back and forth to their house and coming back. That's like his place he stays. So uh, Bethany's maybe a couple miles outside of Jerusalem in the, in the Temple Mount. So he's heading there. He's drawing near to Bethany, I would say, to Jerusalem there. And then he says in, at the end of verse 29, he sent two of this, uh, his disciples. We don't know which one of the 12, but two of them. He commissioned and he instructed them in verse 30, like go into the village in front of you. It could be maybe they reached Bethphage, the first village and then he's go he's like going to that other village just just oh sorry siri's talking <laughs> siri's sorry siri i wasn't calling you so <laughs> so probably bethany's in front of them and so he you know he's saying well go into that village so um so go into the village in front of you and when you enter you're going to find this coat tied in other words this young donkey now, the other Gospels tell us that the mom, the mother donkey is with that colt, also this foal. And it's a colt or this 
young donkey that no one has sat on yet and untie it and bring it here. So Jesus gives this instruction. Now, this donkey is special. No one sat on it. And, and for the Jews, an unridden animal is used for holy purposes. So, so this is special for Jesus because as we're going to see, he, this is the donkey's going to ride to enter Jerusalem. So it, it's for the king. It's for the Messiah. And so this young donkey um, is to, uh, the disciples are to untie it from where it's tied and then bring it to G Jesus. Now, as they're untying it, if the owners are like, hey, hey, what, what are you doing? You know, like, like, um, uh, why are you taking my donkey? You know, I, I don't know. I, I pictured like, you know, the movies when, when the FBI guy flashes his badge and I'm commandeering your vehicle, you know, kind of thing. It's for the government. You know, it's kind of like that. You know, so he's like, go and untie the donkey. But all I have to say is the Lord has need of it. And so it's interesting how Jesus knows all this, right, ahead of time. There's a donkey over there in this other village that uh, you're going to go. It's not ridden, and you guys going to go. And the owners, when they ask, just say the Lord is in need of it. I would say, well, really, Jesus? Are you sure? But knowing this is Jesus giving the instructions, we know that God has a plan and has it all arranged already. And you know what I think about? I think about how this was to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. There in the Old Testament, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this was the prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So this was all arranged. This was all prepared already, and Jesus knew it. So then the disciples were to go and get that donkey. So the first thing I want you to see is Jesus arranges his ride here, basically, yeah, and shows this is all according to God's sovereign plan. He knows it. He, he commissions. He instructs the disciples to get it, and it's Jesus arranges his ride, and it really shows, you know, that he is sovereign. It's all according to God's sovereign plan. Understand, now to ride this donkey, to, to ride into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, is really saying he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling the prophecy that I just read to you, Zechariah 9.9, for the Messiah. And, and you got to understand, too, in ancient times, to ride a donkey meant... You're coming in peace. Uh, you know, back King Solomon did that back in the Old Testament. And we know with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, and not a stallion, not a horse, because usually the Roman generals came in riding a, a, a stallion, a horse, you know, riding to conquer and victory. But Jesus comes in humbly, riding this donkey, really saying, I am coming to bring peace, right? He's coming to die. And so in his death, right, he's going to die so people can be forgiven and that we can have peace with God. Romans 5.1 talks about that we're justified so we can have peace with God. We're, we're no longer enemies of God. Our sin isn't between us and the Lord. So he comes in bringing peace. But there's another thing. He comes in riding a, a donkey symbolizing that he bears the burden of sin because uh, Jesus came as a servant. A donkey serves. He carries the load. He's a what we call a beast of burden, right? And so Jesus carried the burden of our sins when he died on the cross. So all of this, we see the fulfillment of prophecy. He's coming as a symbol of peace. He's bringing peace, the peace of God through his death. He's carrying the burden of sin. All of this is according to God's sovereign plan that was prophesied back Way back in the Old Testament, God had it all arranged. And you know, that makes me think about how we can trust God. Yeah. That He has things arranged in our life. That He's orchestrating things. Yeah. He's lined up things ready 
to have his plan worked out, ready to have his will done in our lives. Miracles are waiting. The provision is waiting. Prearranged, yeah, provision and, and, and things that we need, they're there for us. And God, we know he's omniscient, right? He knows all things. He knows the donkey's over there. He, he knows it's unwritten. He knows the owners are going to ask, and he has it all set up and instructed. He knows all this. And so we can trust God in our future and what's up ahead, what's coming around the corner. He's sovereign. He's sovereign in our life. And I don't know about you, but that really gives me comfort, yeah, that in this story, Jesus knew was there. And Jesus had it already arranged. Yeah? Jesus arranged his ride here. Well, it goes on here in verse 32. Take a look. It says, So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. Amazing. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And that's all we, we, we hear. We, we see that, um, I think, awesome that that. Um, the disciples go just as Jesus had told them. It, it, it's there, right? God never gets things wrong, and and so the owners are like, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" And they, the the disciples, uh, they didn't wave their hands and say, "These are not the droids you're looking for." No, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you will let us take this donkey. No, it wasn't a forced kind of thing, really. These owners were there. So, hey, what are you guys doing? And all they had to say was, the Lord has need of it. Now, that's all we know. But we know Jesus came riding on this donkey. And so the, the owners didn't fight them. They surrendered the donkey to, you know, the disciples to take to Jesus. Perhaps they maybe saw Jesus. Maybe they heard Jesus. Maybe maybe they're even one of the followers, you know, uh, um, um, and, and where they were touched by Jesus' ministry already. So when the disciples came to them and asked about and took the donkey and they asked, they were already ready to give Jesus whatever he needed. I like that. They were already ready. <laughs> Yeah, they were there. They, their heart was already there. And so this is the second thing I, I want you to see before we go on. Jesus arranges his ride with those who had already a ready heart to give anything to God. Yeah. Anything God wanted. Anything for God. They're, they were already ready. So I, I'm assuming, but we don't see it in a text, but in their readiness and willingness and their surrender right away, they must have already believed in Jesus. They must have already been like wanting to follow him and, and, and they knew who Jesus was. And so whatever you want, Jesus, oh yeah, it's for you. So when Jesus arranges his ride, he, he arranges it with those who had already a ready heart to give anything for God. I'm sure you guys maybe heard the hymn, uh, I Surrender All. It's from the 1800s and and the words were actually written by Judson Van Deventer. And the words go, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence uh, daily live. And the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Now, the story behind those words, Judson Van Deventer, he was actually an accomplished musician, singer, composer during the 1800s. And, and um, he went to church. He, he was saved, but this was like his career and everything. But people started to recognize his gift for like evangelism and ministry, and, and they encouraged him like, hey, you should go into full-time ministry and all. Well, he had a hard time really deciding and choosing that. He wavered for five years be, between being like this artist, recording artist, and, and doing ministry. But he finally surrendered his talent and life to Jesus. And that's when he wrote these words. Isn't that great? It's a great story to know when we sing this hymn. Well, I believe these guys were there also. They were already ready with a ready heart to give to Jesus, whatever he needed, whatever he wanted. You know, perhaps you're holding back on Jesus. Perhaps you're not giving God what he's asking for. 
And, and, you know, we sing, I surrender all. We sing, I surrender. There's different songs, you know, that, that talk about surrendering. And we may sing it, but are we sur- really surrendering all, yeah? We may surrender like a portion, you know, or what we feel like, oh, well, I'm willing to give this up, but not this, you know? You know, what I wonder, I wonder how many other donkeys are in that town, yeah, in Bethany, yeah? kind of wonder. I wonder if maybe their owners weren't willing to give up, but this one, and Jesus knew, and that's why uh, it was right there in front of the two disciples. You know what? When we surrender our all, when we surrender those things God is calling us to surrender, think about this. The owners who surrendered this donkey for Jesus to ride, they were, they were part of this miracle that the disciples got to witness. What? This donkey? Unridden? What? The owners are going to say, oh, like that? That was a miracle, right? Wow. For that to happen. When we surrender our things that God is asking us to, I think we, we get to be part of that miracle. When the owners surrendered a donkey yeah, to provide for the Lord, when we surrender, whatever that is, we get to provide yeah, for someone else, for, for God's needs, or however He wants to use what we're surrendering, and we become a part of fulfilling God's plan. So let us always have that willing heart. Let it be ready. That no matter what, we're willing. Here, God. Oh, God, you're asking for this? Here, God. That we hold loosely the things of this world, yeah? That they're not so tight. I mean, they belong to God anyway, right? We talked about last week that we're only stewards of the monies that God has blessed us with. We're managers, yeah? And it's, we want to just follow God's will and what, how He wants us to do with that money. And we should be ready, holding it loosely. So when the time comes, we already have a ready heart to surrender whatever it is to Jesus. You know, um, the founder of the Salvation Army years ago was a great ministry, evangelistic ministry for Jesus Christ. Um, was William Booth. That was his name. Well, a guy named of J. Wilbert Chapman, a minister, said this after spending time with William Booth, said this of, of this the dedication that William Booth had, this founder of Salvation Army. And uh, Wilbert Chapman said this, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. I love that. That's how we can be powerfully used by God the more we surrender to Jesus. All right, so we're getting ready here for the official entrance of the Messiah. And first of all, we see that Jesus arranges his ride. Then we come to number two, the actual triumphant entry, and that's Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Number two in our outline, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Here we're going to cover verse 35 through 38 in this section. Take a look at these verses now. Luke chapter 19, verse 35 says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now when uh, the disciples brought the donkey to Jesus, we see in verse uh, 35 that they threw their cloaks, like their, their, their outerwear, their jackets or coats, on top of the donkey, this young donkey, and Jesus sat on it. So they made like a saddle for him. Now it wasn't just primarily for Jesus' comfort, because back then they would ride without it, but it really was a, a, a symbol of respect, that, that they would... Uh, put their coats on so Jesus could ride on on the donkey there. And it's it's the same thing as we read, uh, go on and read that 
as he rode along, they, the disciples, or all the followers who were there with Jesus, not just the twelve, but all the other multitude of followers, they began to spread their cloaks on the road. So they took their jackets, their coats, spread it on the road like a red carpet, yeah, laid it down as as this red carpet for Jesus, and it was all in a, an act of respect and honor and submission to Jesus as their king, basically, as their Messiah. John chapter 12 adds to this moment as Jesus is riding along that they also took palm branches and leaves and laid them on the road and began to wave them in honor of Jesus Christ. And we know that from what? Palm Sunday. So this is the day, this is Sunday, Palm Sunday, the last Sunday of Jesus' life, the last week of his life. So to give you a little idea of what's coming up uh, as we come into this last week. So on Sunday, this is where Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. The next day on Monday, he's teaching the temple and he cleanses the temple. And we're going to see that next week. On Tuesday, he goes back. Uh, well, sometime Monday or t- uh, maybe, and he even goes back to Mount of Olives, and 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 then he's on Tuesday, he's on the Mount of Olives, looking at Jerusalem, and he gives the end time prophecy of what's going to happen at the end, and the disciples' question. We'll get into that too, in in the the next chapter or a couple chapters over. On Wednesday, it's kind of a quiet day. It's believed that's the day that Judas arranged his betrayal with the Pharisees. On Thursday, all the preparations for the Passover meal is made, and he has the Last Supper. He turns Passover meal into communion. Friday is a day, or early in the morning, right, very early. He's betrayed, he's arrested, he's brought to the legal trial of um uh, uh, before the Sanhedrin, then the Sanhedrin early in the morning on Friday uh, it, it, uh, turns him over to Pilate, to the Romans. He's scourged. And then by 9 a.m. on Friday, he is hanging on the cross. And Friday at 3 p.m., he dies. He's put in the tomb. Saturday is the Sabbath, right? But on Sunday morning, he is resurrected. So that's kind of a, a, a overview of, and a look on what's coming ahead. So this is, what we're seeing is, this is Sunday before this. This is the Palm Sunday, and he's heading into his death, the last week of his life. So it goes on here in Luke 19, uh, in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Now, he went from Bethany, right, uh, uh, or so on, on the east side of the mountain. So he's coming over, he's riding, and he's, he's, he's reached a peak of the hill. Now he's coming down, and as he's coming down, the people are all around. They're greeting him. They've made a path for him going into Jerusalem, going into the Jerusalem gate there, through the Kindron Valley into uh, a Jerusalem city, and they made this path. They're, they're, they're waving the palm branches. The palm, palms are on the ground also. And as he's making his way down, the praise starts, the worship starts, the, the, the loud voice of, of, of the people start to come out. And as he draws down, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, it says here in verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Now, the multitude of his disciples, disciples mean not just the 12, but all the followers. This this whole big massive crowd of people have been following Jesus and even more who live in the area, more who are, remember, this is Passover. And so everyone's there for the Passover celebration and they're coming out of Jerusalem. People are staying all around the area and, and they're coming out. So there's this massive crowd now and they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, verse 37. For what? For all the mighty works that they had seen. The healings, right? All the healings that happened. The blind who see, you know, the lame who walk, right? The, the people who are sick, healed. Or, or lepers, right? Being healed. They, they've heard that. Some of them have actually seen those things happen. The paralyzed walking. And remember I mentioned Lazarus, alive from the dead. So 
everyone's excited. Everyone's like, whoa, this is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's coming in. He's coming down. And they began to just rejoice and praise him. And they're saying in verse 39, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glorifying God. Glory to God in the highest, glorifying God, the Lord God. And and really what they're what they're doing is is they're actually quoting um, Psalm 118:26 when they said, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." That that's actually in Psalm 118. The other gospel accounts add that they cry Hosanna, which means save now, which is actually, uh, um, I think is the next verse, or, or I maybe have vice versa, but right around there, 118, 25, and 26. They're quoting it. It's a, it's a psalm that speaks about the Messiah coming to Israel, coming into Jerusalem. So you can tell this clearly shows that the people see Jesus as the Messiah. There's something I want you to notice here, and it's not in this chapter. It's not in this text. Jesus does not stop them. He doesn't tell them, no, 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 shh, 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 no, be quiet. Remember, we've been seeing that in some of the healings, and the people start praising God. Oh, she's like, shh, shh, quiet, quiet. Or when he confronts demons, the demons like, I know who you are. You are the son of the living God, right? And Jesus like, quiet, be quiet, right? He he doesn't. It wasn't time for this. To happen, it wasn't time for uh, 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 people to begin to really acknowledge, and then that that's going to start a fire and of, of emotion, excitement, everything. It wasn't time, but this was the time. He allows it here, and why is that? Because this is the official entrance of the Messiah. This is his official arrival. I mean, that's why I made this title. This is what is known as the triumphal or triumphant entry, the official arriving of the Messiah of God into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been going in and out of Jerusalem. He grew up going to Jerusalem, going to the feast. He, in his three years of ministry, he was going to Jerusalem back and forth. But this time was the official time. This was the time that it, it was particularly noted. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why he came in on a donkey this time. I mean, he walked into Jerusalem in the past. But this was the official ceremony. This was the official entrance of the Messiah, his arrival to Jerusalem. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. You know what's amazing? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 29 um, and it's 25, excuse me, and it's in the middle of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the prophecy about Israel and what's going to happen to Israel, and the Messiah is mentioned in that. What's well, basically this angel gives Daniel this prophecy about how, when the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah will be 493 years. If you can catch our study on that uh, later in Daniel 9, but the prophecy was actually saying from the command to rebuild Jerusalem at the time Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, uh, Daniel gets this prophecy. When the command goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, 493 later, years later, that's when the Messiah is going to return to Jerusalem or, or come to Jerusalem, excuse me. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 2, it tells us that that happened when the, the Persian king Artaxerxes commanded, it gives us the date, March 14, 445 B.C. was the actual command that went out. And remember, the Medo-Persian king allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the city, and the temple. Well, 490 years, 93 years from that is when the Messiah was going to make the, his official entrance. That was what the prophecy said. Well, in, famously, this man named Sir Robert Anderson, who, who wrote a book on, on all the prophecies in Daniel 9, he famously calculated uh, from that date, March 14, 445 B.C., uh, calculated, taking into consideration the Babylonian calendar, which was used then, and then switched to the Julian calendar during the Roman times, and, and then arrived with this date, April 6, 32 A.D., and 
which is amazing to me. Because in my mind, it kind of coincides in my studies and when Jesus was born and everything like that and his 33 years in life. Yeah, I know we say, oh, zero is, you know, zero AD is from Christ. But his actually believed, you know, a couple of years or a year before that. Well, anyway, he comes to this date, April 6, 32 AD. And it also coincides with when Passover was that same year. And we know as he's coming into Jerusalem, this is Passover week. So I think this is amazing, yeah, that in his official entrance into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah who is supposed to come, it's on this exact day that was prophesied way back in the time of Daniel. So here's the point. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it shows how God is never too late or too early, but God is always right on time. That's what speaks to me. That's what we see here. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it shows how God is never too late or too early, but God is always right on time. Isn't that great? I love this. To, to, to study this, to read this, and to be able to talk about this, like, wow, God, you're, you're amazing. You're sovereign. You work your plan. You arrange things. But when you do, when, you, when your plan is put out, it's done right. It's never done wrong. And it's never too late or too early, but it's always right on time. I, I thought this was funny. I read about this lady who was super frustrated um, because Kathy Mulkins, uh, his, her Thanksgiving turkey was cooked. Her meal was all ready to go for her guests that she was, she was getting ready for. And then she realized this free calendar from Jackson Madison County General Hospital was wrong. They gave out 40,000 calendars that had Thanksgiving on the 21st and not the 28th that year. And her dinner was one week early. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know. I, anyway, I guess you just thought, oh, yeah, it's the 21st. You maybe glance at it and crazy. But, you know, God never does that. And God never, you know, will get us wrong. And God never is frustrated. His timing is perfect, right on time. He knows how to time things in our life. He knows how to take care of things. He knows how to bring things in perfect sync with his plans. Are you struggling right now? Are you struggling with things? Are you struggling? Well, God, why don't you do this now? Or God, shouldn't this happen now? Just remember, God is perfect in his timing. Don't overthink things. That's what I do. When, when things are delayed, or I think, well, it should happen like this, and I overthink things, and I start to, to get frustrated. And, well, it's, well, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. I assume things. I start, my head starts spinning on things that, I don't need to spin about, yeah. But I need to just trust God that He has His perfect timing. Warren Wiersbe said, "God is never in a hurry. He knows what He's doing, and His timing is never off." And that's what we got to do: is trust God. He doesn't hurry up. He doesn't panic like I do, <laughs> right? He's perfect in His timing. And this is what we see when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. All right, so we see this official entrance of the Messiah. Jesus arranges his right. His perfect timing of Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And now number three, our last heading in our last section, Jesus arouses the Pharisees. And, and this is our last two verses for tonight, verse 38 and 39. Take a look here. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, the Pharisees, some of them were in that crowd watching everything. Remember, the Pharisees are one of the groups of the ruling leaders of Israel. Uh, Rome allowed the Sanhedrin. Uh, there's different groups there. One of them was the Pharisees to sort of be religious leaders and, and kind of guide Israel. Rome allowed that. They had a Sanhedrin of 70 guys who, 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 who kind of took leadership in the spiritual leadership. Well, these Pharisees, remember, they're the legalist guys, and, and, and they were into their law, and they're hypocritical and all that. Well, they were not happy 
yeah, with Jesus. They 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 didn't like him. Yeah, and this this just irritated them more. They hated Jesus because the crowd was following Jesus. They and they they, made, they were jealous of Jesus. They hated how Jesus would confront them about what they were doing and call them out on their sin. They hated Jesus because Jesus didn't submit to them. He didn't he didn't uh, go in their ways and go along with them. It's I mean Jesus was. According to God, he's God, right, in, in his word. But these Pharisees had departed from God's word, the essence of who God is and the truth of God, and got into their traditions and their commentaries more and made uh, everything about God's law more legalistic. And so they didn't really like the people saying this about Jesus. It, it was really annoying them. And so they called on Jesus here in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Rabbi, rebuke your followers here. Re- tell them all they shouldn't say these things. They shouldn't say that. And of course, the Pharisees don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't see what the people see in Jesus. So they call them, that, hey, rebuke these guys. Tell them to stop. Tell them all this. Stand up, you know. And what was Jesus' reply? His reply was in verse 40, I tell you, if these, the people, were silent, then the very stones would cry out. And there's a lot of stones around there. And he would say, and these, these stones, they would begin to praise me. In other words, I'm not going to say anything. Because even if they stop, even if the people were silent, you know what he's saying? All creation would still Praise me, the Lord God, Jesus, the Messiah. Understand that um, the people, the multitude of followers, followers here. I mean, they they they've seen so much, yeah. And and all this, even the miracles, and and now the people. This was annoying the Pharisees enough that they were already plotting when Lazarus was raised from the dead. We read in John that that he they were already just there's that's it we um, they didn't even believe and see and, and accept that miracle and they began to plot on how to get rid of Jesus and so Jesus knew that but I think he was trying to speak to the Pharisees here he knew they were angry and so. Jesus just arouses the Pharisees more, really to confront their unbelief, showing that their rejection doesn't change who Jesus is. Just because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, just because they're plotting to, to get rid of him, that doesn't mean, that doesn't change who Jesus is. If the people are silent, then all creation is still going to praise him. And that's the point. Jesus arouses the Pharisees to confront their Unbelief showing their rejection does not change who Jesus is. Turn to over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. It says here, Do not think, Jesus is speaking, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And and and, and uh, the Pharisees were thinking that. But Jesus said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled it all. All the prophecies he fulfilled. Jesus didn't change all. He fulfilled the law. He lived it out perfectly. Jesus is the Messiah. And so no matter what the Pharisees would think, or, or no matter what they thought of Jesus, it didn't change who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. And they are the ones who are blind to that. I think of it this way. Some say that, well, Christianity is dying in our society. And, and we see we see there's a lot more darkness and people pulling away and churches are shrinking all over. But that doesn't mean Jesus is going away. It doesn't change that, right? Society's unbelief does not make God any less or any less powerful. God is still God. Yeah. He doesn't need us yeah, 
to empower him with our belief. I, I don't know why I was thinking of that Santa Claus movie, you know, where you got to believe or believe, and, and then, you know, then Santa Claus and the sleigh can fly and, and all of that. No. God is still going to be God, yeah, even if we don't believe in him, even if our faith is weak. And you know what? Isn't that good to know? Sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes we, we God, it's hard to see you as all-powerful. It's hard to, to see in this problem, in this situation, that, that you can be stronger. I don't know a way out. I don't know if you can bring me a way out. But just because you don't believe and you don't see doesn't mean then God is not empowered to get you out. Yeah? No, God is God, and he doesn't stop being God whether the people believe or not, or the Pharisees. So we have confidence in that, that God is still God, and that Jesus is Jesus. And, and you know what I like to think? That Jesus still saves, even if we fail. Yeah, That Jesus still rescues us, even if we, we stumble. It doesn't change his love, and it doesn't change how he looks at us, like, oh, we, oh, we got to toe the line, or we got to do certain things, and not that, yeah. Jesus' love is still consistent, and God is still God, and Jesus is still our Savior. And so, you know what's great to know? No one can take Jesus from us, yeah. No one can, no one can. You know, as we close up here, what are you struggling with? What is, what is chipping away at your trust in God? I was thinking about Psalm 119, 145, and listen, this is the NLT version. It says, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. It's the word. It's what we studied today that we can find joy and confidence in. It, it, it's the word of God where you know what is revealed to us is who God is, the character of God, His power. It, it, that's why we study it. That's why we get, get into this. And so the Lord is calling on us to trust Him, to trust what His Word says. It's easy when things are going good, but when things don't go the way we expect, right? That's when God calls on us to trust in His Word and who he is. Even when we don't understand it all, even when we, we, we fail God, you know what? God loves us perfectly. And, and I love that thought. We don't love each other perfectly. Sometimes it's, it's always, uh, well, I'll love you if, if you do good for me, yeah? Or you love me. But even when we fail God, God still loves us. And he loves us perfectly in that way. So we can go to Jesus. He's our rock. Yeah, he's he, we can rely on him no matter what. And so let the promise of his word be our sure hope that what we see in here and what we've seen tonight, that Jesus is our rock. Isaiah 26, 4, again, this is the NLT says, trust in the Lord always for the Lord God is the eternal rock. So no matter what, we hold on to this. I'll close with this, just kind of in this thought of, of really trusting what the Word of God says. Um, there's a story about two boys who played a joke on uh, a new Keiki Church teacher. By the, they, they stuck two of the pages of his Bible together. And so during class, the, the teacher took the, his Bible out and read the verse, um, starting on the bottom of the first page. Of, of the first page they had stuck together and then flipping it over. And so here's a teacher, you know, this elderly guy, and he's, he's reading. And he reads this verse. He says, Noah, when he was 120 years old, took on, unto himself a wife who was, then he turned the page in the Bible, and he read, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, built of gopher wood. <laughs> and so he paused and thought, and he turned back. And he, you could see he's reading it over again, and you turn the page, and reading it over again is like, well, after his pause and silence and in studying what he read, he turned to the kids and looked up at him and declared, children, 
I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, so I accept this as proof that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> no matter what, we trust the Word. No matter what, yeah. We know that this truth is real because it comes from God, and it's God speaking to us. So no matter what anyone thinks of Jesus, he's God, he's Jesus. No matter what the situation may try and tell us about Jesus, he still is the Lord God, our Savior, who came to save us, who marched into Jerusalem in this last time to die on the cross for us. And no one can change that fact. No one can change what we find in God's word tonight, that the Lord came to Jerusalem on a mission, and this was the official entrance of the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we come to you tonight and, and finish up this message, God. We thank you that in it all, Lord, we you are Lord God, and no matter what, nothing can change that fact. We see evidence, Lord, of your arranging or your arrangement in your sovereign plan and and we see you, God, working that plan. We we see you, Lord, lovingly, God, uh, reaching out to even the Pharisees in unbelief. And we see that when you came into Jerusalem, you fulfilled all the prophecy. And so, Lord, we know that you are the Messiah. And so as we come to you tonight, God, we want to acknowledge that you are Lord God. And like the owners of the donkey, God, if you are our Lord, then we are your servant. And we want to be ready and willing, God, to give you everything, to surrender all, Lord. And God, that's the best thing we can do. I pray for anyone, whether they're here right now or connected online or listening to this later. God, I pray for anyone who's struggling and having a hard time right now. God, I pray that the best thing they could do is just surrender it all to you, to put it into your hands, God. Lord, so many times I, I, I take my struggles, and even right now I, I take it, on, and I literally picture my mind putting it into your large hands, God. And Lord, as I do that, I want to release it to you and rely upon your plan, on your arrangement, on your timing, to real rely upon your will, trusting you that you know better than me, that you have wisdom far beyond me, that you know all things. You know how I'm feeling. You know where I'm hurting. You know what I need. You, you know what's happened, but you also have the answers. And God, as we surrender all to you, may you free us, God, from the bondage of our own worries and fears, God. And may we find peace and we may we find faith, and may we find a closeness to you, God. So here we are, Lord, surrendering all, and even surrendering our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>